Yeah, this morning we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 of Second Peter chapter 3. We're getting close to the end of the book. Uh, and I think for some context, let's read the first seven verses. We'll focus on verses 5, 6, and 7 this morning. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is now, beloved, the second letter. First Peter was the first letter. Second Peter is the second inspired letter preserved providentially in your New Testament that I'm writing to you, and that's plural, so that's all y'all in Oklahoma, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, that's the New Testament. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, and the closer we get to the second coming of Christ, the more people are going to scoff at it. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust patterns, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Uh, God's not going to intervene. Uh, you can do whatever you want to. There's no accountability, and there's no divine intervention into human history. Don't worry about it. For, and here's verse 5, we'll start with this this morning. When they maintain this, that the second advent's not coming, that the delay, the apparent delay in the second coming of Christ is indication it's not going to happen, period, over and out. That when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that, in fact, the beginning of human history involves the supernatural intervention of God, and the end of human history will involve the same thing. That by the word of God, based on his divine initiation, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth, you know, the earth as it exists today, was formed out of water and by water. Remember, it's dark and flooded, Donetta, right? The beginning of Genesis. Through which the world at that time, back in Genesis, was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the same intervention that created the system, he'll end it on his terms. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. We're not going to be flooded again. We're going to have something else happen to the uh, cosmos kept in God's hand and his timing for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Um, Yeah, looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3 talks about two things. Number one, it says, don't be shocked or surprised by man's present and future mockery. People are going to make fun of Katie Davis's faith and Angie uh, Miller's faith, and they're going to certainly make fun of the idea of creation and consummation of uh, supernatural intervention by God in human history. They're going to be uh, making fun of that, and so don't be shocked, surprised, or paralyzed by that. Secondly, we're going to see starting next week, don't be uncertain of the fact that it's coming. Uh, evil's been permitted, but it's not promoted by God, and it's going to be finished. Uh, it's going to be forever defeated, and the second coming of Christ is going to happen right on God's schedule, even if it apparently seems like a long time on our schedule. Now, if you break down the first part, chapter 3 has how many parts? Two parts, right? Break down the first part. Dustin, verses 1 through 7, looks like this. A couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 and 2, the lock box of Scripture. Okay, Just focus on what the Scripture says. It's all going to work out. Uh, last week, we looked at the loud laughter of the skeptics. There are going to be people scoffing that the apparent delay, Deborah, and the second coming of Christ, the initiation of the end times, as the Bible talks about it so prominently, the fact that it hasn't happened yet means it's never going to happen. But it's not true. That's just a uh, 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 failure to connect some dots. And then today we're going to look at the leak in the logic of the skeptics in verses 5 through 7, right? Um, so last week in verses 3 and 4, we saw they laughed Christ to scorn back in Luke. They're going to laugh at us too when we talk about his second coming. Uh, moral accountability before God, existence of actual morals that transcend social constructs, uh, the fact that God can define things like marriage, things like that. They're going to laugh at that. They're going to think that's just absurd or maybe even dangerous. Uh, but uh, don't be surprised or paralyzed by that. And let's not change the faith to try to be more pleasing to the world. Now today, we're going to see in verses uh, 
5, 6, and 7, those who laugh about God's control of the future, Betty, that just don't believe in the possibility of a second advent, okay? Yeah, so this is what I want you to take home from this passage today. Those who laugh about God's control of the future, and and they laugh about it. And last week, Tom, we talked about the fact, one uh, thing that throws gasoline on that fire are Christians that make these false predictions about the second coming that don't pan out. That only makes it worse, okay? So you got to be careful of those who set dates. But those who laugh about God's control of the future fail to factor in his control of the past. That's what this passage is saying. We're going to kind of go deep in the weeds today at some of the details, but that's the big picture, okay? And that's what I want you to take home today. Let's, uh, before we dive into this passage, let's pray for our teachability to God's word and also for our uh, troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. Now, Gay, you'll notice I... Uh, I came across this picture of Joe in his uniform, and he's been a civilian now for a while, but he looks so good there, I decided, and I w- didn't take anybody else's picture off, but I took my nephew's picture, the, uh, Josh Reed, the sailor, took him out, put Joe there, just so I think he's such a good-looking uh, soldier. And there's uh, Greg's son, Harrison, is down there bottom center, and that was taken uh, at the recruiting office, I think, before he went into basic training. And they always tell you in the Marine Corps, you know, it's going to be a lot of laughs, and it's not really a lot of laughs. But he actually made it through basic training, and he is now a U.S. Marine. So hopefully we'll get a picture of him in his uniform at some point. We'll put that up there. Okay. So let's pray for our teachability, our troops, firefighters, peace officers. Okay. And Ron, pray for us in that direction, would you? Thanks, Ron. We're very happy to have Caroline's mother, Regina, with us this morning. And... uh uh, I, I, I sometimes tell people when, when I'm speaking in a venue that's not my home court, the first thing I do when I first start talking is look up against the back row, you know, to make sure that they can hear me because if they, typically, you know, the first 30 seconds, they're still trying to listen to you before they turn you off and they realize you're boring or not very good. So that if they can't hear you, they kind of cran forward and kind of do that kind of thing. So we're going to crank up the volume today so everybody can hear this. Uh, and I'll try to do the best I can. Uh, knowing this is being taped, right? But here's uh, some attempts to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking before we dive into some uh, abstract but important details today from Genesis and Second Peter. Uh, here's a pastoral search committee, and here's kind of what they're thinking about, Dennis, as they get started in the process. Basically, we're looking for an innovative pastor with a fresh vision who will inspire our church to remain exactly the same. That's pretty much what a lot of churches want, you know. Now, you got to interpret everything in context, Dustin, including the scripture. Okay, here's a, a lady, a secretary, they call them administrative assistants now, uh, and it says, faith can move mountains. So you're thinking, she's a good Christian lady, and she's really got a lot of faith. But once you hear how she answers the phone, you realize what she, that plaque really means. Acme excavating, faith speaking. Faith can move mountains means she can move mountains. Means she, you better do what she says or you're in trouble, right? Here's a guy uh, at a job interview. Says on your resume you were created in God's image. Very impressive. Uh, here's a priest baptizing his uh, monitor with holy water. Perhaps sprinkling with holy water is not the best way to launch the church website. And then here's two kids in Sunday school. The one, the older one says, uh, I don't know all Ten Commandments. The only ones I remember are settle down at your age and take that out of your mouth. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. The overall message of this book is a Christ-centered hope. Or we're not hoping it's going to pan out in the end, but we're looking forward, eagerly anticipating the fact that Jesus will end history on God's terms, and we're going to like it should motivate believers now, meaning Maxine Blystone or Jack Smith or Janice Skinner or uh, Angel Wiley to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness, wholeness in your Christian life centered on the Lordship of Christ and to avoid the heresies, 
the false teachings doctrinally and morally of false teachers like, doesn't matter what you do, Jesus didn't come back anyway. That's kind of what they're saying, okay? Uh, Second Peter is like a big arch, growing grace and knowledge, and then you've got a three-story building under it. Holiness, chapter 1, heresy, uh, chapter 2, hope, chapter 3. Uh, of course, we really like this visual aid. That's a C with hair on it. So heresy is false teaching. And in chapter 3, he says the antidote to heresy is Christian hope that will keep us centered on Christ. Because after all, he is the exclusive issue and exclusive issue where of eternal life. There's nobody like him. He's unique. He's special. He's the God-man Savior. Now, hope is holding on to a positive and optimistic perspective, whether you're building a house or moving out of a house or wanting to build a house or wanting to move out of a house or not wanting a house and wanting a TP or whatever you want. Holding a positive and optimistic perspective now based on an eager expectation of our forever future with Jesus, which brings us to our passage this morning. Uh, verses 5 and 6 talk about the past. The beginning of human history was initiated by the direct supernatural working of God. That being true, it's no surprise that the end of human history will be initiated by the direct supernatural working of God. In other words, those who laugh about God's control of the future is not going to happen, fail to factor in all the data. They fail to factor in his control of the past, right? Yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's, uh, if you'll look at my notes, my breakdown there, if you've got that in your insert, I want to read this passage just as an overview, as an introduction, with those two categories, the past, the beginning of human history is initiated by the work of God, the future, the end of human history will be initiated by the direct supernatural working of God, just so you can kind of see how that's what the passage is saying. So look at verses uh, five and six, the beginning of human history on this earth was started by the direct supernatural working of God, the God of the Bible, right? For when they, the scoffers mentioned back in verse three and four, maintain this, that the second coming is not going to happen, it's fantasy because there is no God who intervenes in the world, it escapes their notice that in fact the beginning of human history goes back to the supernatural working of God. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth we live on now was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Uh, the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the water. It was dark, and there was liquid water on earth when we got started renovating the earth for us to be here. Verse 7, Therefore the end of human history on this earth will be initiated by the direct working of God. It makes sense. It's logical. It's the only possibility. But by his word, right now, we're living in the middle between those two supernatural points. The present heavens and earth that Murray's living in, and he graduates this this weekend. Uh, he's a very unique individual. Of course, Murray, everybody's unique and special. So try to get over it, okay? But uh, he's especially special because he has taken 15 hours of college credit as a high school student, uh, he's got 15 hours of college credit at Cameron University. Next fall, he's going to start an engineering program at OSU. He also uh, uh, has done extensive work, including making a research project presentation last week at the Red River Technology Center. And he went to, had a world's greatest teacher because I think his mom and dad were his teachers at homeschool. So he's a very unique individual. And uh, But it's going to get tougher. You know what? Because you're going to go like, what, 190 miles away from home. Mom and dad's not going to be there anymore. Pastor Brad won't be your teacher of world religions. Uh, some of the people that are going to be teach you may have a different kind of a presupposition than I've got. So it's going to be interesting for you. But, uh, yeah, uh, Murray lives in this world, and it's right now being uh, reserved by the one who created it for destruction, and we're going to end up with a whole new universe for fire kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now you'll notice uh, that's verse 7, but verse 10, and I'm jumping ahead, says at the end of God's purposes for the present heavens and earth, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth 
and its works will all be burned up, and then we're going to go into a whole new universe, the, the best of all possible worlds. But at that point, let me just say a couple of things. Notice that the past and the future for Christians are the key to the present. Now, skeptics want to say the present is the key to the past and go to uniformitarianism. But we're going to say, no, with Peter, the past, God's supernatural beginning of the world we're living in and his promised and it's going to happen, supernatural end of the world we live in, that's the key to living in the present, right? Uh, those who deny God will end human history on his terms. That's our hope. Start with a faith position that God didn't start history, so he's certainly not going to bring it to an end. Now, there are only, I don't care if you're Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, who's actually a number six agnostic according to his own testimony now. Uh, there's probably no God, he says. Uh, not, there is no God with an atheist. But there's only four possibilities for anybody, whether you're Aristotle or uh, Aristotle Onassis. It doesn't matter. If anything now exists, something or someone must have always been there or else the universe popped in existence out of nothing. That's the only options you got logically. And the leaks in the logic of the skeptics is they don't factor in the logical uh, dynamics that lead to the fact we need to be looking for a supernatural ending of the universe. The universe could be imaginary on paper, uh, but common sense disproves that. Do you think the universe is imaginary? If you do, hey, it's a free country. You can believe that. But Natalie, if you believe that, that's your position, I want you to take, before you leave the imaginary church today, take all your imaginary money, put it on my imaginary desk. Okay? And put your imaginary car keys in, on my imaginary desk and walk home to your imaginary house. You know, so, so no, that's logically uh, possible based on the rules of Aristotelian logic, but it doesn't make sense. Okay? Uh, universe is eternal. You know what? Science really wanted to believe in the steady state theory until the early 60s. And then modern physics said, it's not true. The universe you live in, Regina, had a beginning. Everybody says that. It's not forever. The universe we, we live in cannot explain its own existence. It just doesn't. God's got his fingerprint in there. Uh, it's possible the universe came in existence by something or someone outside of time space, by an eternal transcendent outside of time space agent and that's our position in the beginning god you know right so that's logically and scripturally uh what the deal is and then so guess what if you're richard dawkins today he doesn't believe the universe is imaginary he doesn't believe the universe is eternal physics doesn't let him believe that anymore he certainly doesn't believe god created the universe so what's he left with there's only one other possibility if anything now exists, something or someone must be outside of time and eternal, or otherwise the universe popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. That's the position of the elites today in your world. You know, in fact, there's a book, A Universe Out of Nothing. Except for them, nothing isn't nothing. You've got to have G at 9.8 meters and a quantum vacuum. And I'm saying, no, that's not nothing. I'm not giving you that, Okay. What they say is, give us one big miracle at the beginning, and we can explain everything else. And I'm saying, no, I'm not giving you a big, uh, illogical, irrational uh, miracle. I'm going to give you a rational miracle that a transcendent creator who's made himself known through Jesus Christ initiated human history, and he's going to end history. So that's the big picture here, right? Those who laugh about God's control of the future fail to factor in his control of the past. But let's think about, uh, and this is kind of a disclaimer, because I want to go into the weeds a little bit into some details about how Christians think about origins. But let me just say this. You know, something that I've prided myself on, uh, Christian pride, you know, uh, self-satisfaction, is even though I'm convinced that God's Word says the next event on God's timetable and prophecy will be the rapture, where God's going to resurrect living believers in place. We're going to be caught up to meet Christ in the air, go back to the prepared places he promised in John 14, right? Then the earth will go into a period of tribulation that so much of the book of Revelation is about, climaxed by a literal second advent to the earth, and then a millennium, and then the eternal state. That's called pre-tribulationalism. Before a tribulation on earth, uh, we're going to have a rapture, okay? Uh that's my position, that's my conviction, that's why I teach scripture, uh, 
However, I go out of my way to say, that's not the only way Christians see Bible prophecy. There's at least two other major views, all millennialism, post-millennialism. I'm not going to go into all that, but I always go out of my way to say, people who love Jesus just as much as I do, maybe more, if that's possible, like Martin Luther, like John Calvin, like John Wesley, uh, don't have, did not have a prophecy diagram that looked exactly like mine. And that's okay. Because they believe in a literal second advent. They believe that God's going to end history on on his terms. And that's the big thing Bible prophecy teaches us. Have you ever heard me say that? If you've been around here very long, yeah, you've said a thousand times. Okay, thank you for noticing. It's actually been a thousand and twelve, but I keep track. Okay. The same thing is true when you're talking about the details of interpreting, not the book of Revelation now, but the book of Genesis We shouldn't be surprised by the fact that real Christians interpret the details of Revelation differently, but we all end up with a little second advent, don't we? That's the big thing that the Holy Spirit always gets through. In the same way, we should not be surprised that real Christians interpret the details of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, differently in at least three major ways. And there's actually at least eight major ways that evangelicals uh interpret the early chapters of Genesis, I think the three that are, are the most viable, because they're all literal, and they believe in 24 uh, consecutive 24-hour days in creation week, and I think that's essential myself, are these three views. And we're going to su- sur- survey those for a minute. But when I say those, those are the three major views that evangelicals believe. What do I mean by evangelical? Well, they're the ones that are obsessed by the Fear that somewhere someone's having a good time, isn't that? No, those were the Puritans. Uh, the evangelicals <laughs> are the folks that, at the core of the Christian faith, they believe uh, is not how often you do the Lord's Supper or what exactly baptism symbolizes, but who Jesus is and what He did on the cross. That He died for our sins, He paid our sin debt, He rose again from the dead, and salvation is through Him and based completely on Him. And every Christian of every color, country, culture, generation, denomination that believes that is an evangelical Christian. Why do we come up with that term evangelical? Because it's fun to say. No, that's not the reason. Because the word gospel, which is at the core of that chart, is the Greek term euangelion. You put English letters on that, you get evangelical. What is the euangelion? What's the gospel? The gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins and he was raised on the third day. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So that's what evangelicals are. They dare to believe that Jesus really is the Savior, not just a helper, He's not giving us probation. He's giving us salvation when we trust in him. So my point is, uh, there are evangelical Christians that hold the initial chaos view, the gap theory, or the pre-creation chaos view, just like there are evangelical Christians who have different prophecy diagrams than I do. Now, they're wrong on their prophecy diagrams. Scott and I know that. But we need to respect the fact that it's possible all of us are going to have to change our fine-tuning of interpretation of certain details of Scripture after we get to heaven, because I don't think any of us have a perfect theology, except maybe for me personally. Uh, but I'm going to operate on the assumption I could be wrong, right? Uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to call these the three major evangelical views, because the, they take the entire text literally, and I think that's really important because when you look at Genesis in Hebrew, it's straight Hebrew narrative uh, prose. It's not poetry. It's not intended to be taken metaphorically or uh, allegorically. But there's at least three, three major views that Christians have when it comes to the early chapters of Genesis. And we're going to compare those to what Second Peter tells us about this out of water and by water kind of thing. But let's walk through those. First one, uh, the more traditional view is called in uh, technical circles, the first one's called the initial chaos view, and it would say, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. And that is taken as a, a point act where everything is created, out of nothing, all at once. And when I say M-E-S-T, you know what that stands for? Matter, energy, space, and time. In the beginning, God creates all matter, all energy, all space, all time, essentially the way it is right now, except on the earth, 
which looks like a construction site because it says, and the earth was without form and void, very important phrase in the original. Say about more about that in a minute. Uh, and uh, the earth was out without form and void, and the Spirit of God's moving on the surface of the waters. Okay? So it's a dark, wet planet. Everything else is created essentially the way it is now, fully formed, but the earth's a construction site and with, with raw materials gathered around. Okay? And then the process of creation or renovation of that raw materials begins on earth, climaxing with human beings being created. Okay? So that's the initial chaos view. Second view is called the gap theory. Um, and the gap theory says, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. That's the creation of everything. Matter, space, energy, time, and all that good stuff. And then verse 2 says, I could almost put, but the earth is without form and void. And the Spirit of God's moving on the surface of the liquid water, since everything's dark and wet. And evangelicals read that and said, hey, something's wrong here. If God's creating everything, why is it dark and wet? Now, darkness and flooding, is that generally a good thing in Scripture? Is darkness as opposed to light and flooding as opposed to dry ground, is that generally good or bad in Scripture, would you say? It's bad, right? So the gap theory presupposes an unstated but huge gap of time in between Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 1-2, the earth without form and void, and it's flooded and dark. And said so that's the reason it's flooded and dark, because Satan fell... Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's a gap, a big gap, Ron, between Genesis 1 and 2, in which Satan fell, and the result of that on planet Earth is darkness and flooding, right? So that's that's that view. Third view is called the pre-creation chaos view, or the PCC view, if you want to be politically correct. And by the way, before I forget, uh, let me mention the advocates of these views. The first view... The initial chaos view is held by some great people in church history, John Calvin, Derek Kidner, Harry Moore, Henry Morris, or his friends call him Harry. Um, the uh, gap theory was held by C.I. Schofield and found in the Schofield Reference Bible, which popularized it back in the 40s and 50s in the United States. Harry Rimmer and Arthur, Arthur Custis is an Australian scholar. And then I've got to say this because I met a big, big boo-boo and as a Dallas Seminary guy. I'm going to be in big trouble if they find out I did this. Uh, advocates for the pre-creation chaos view are not Merrill Under. There's no such biblical scholar, I don't think, called Merrill Under. What, what did I mean to say? Unger. So just for my peace of mind, if you have a pen or a pencil, please change the D to a G. Otherwise, they might take my degree away from Dallas. Dallas Seminary may take my degree away because uh, he's one of the big uh, heavyweights that helped got Dallas Seminary started. That's Merrill Unger, Bruce Waltke, and Alan Ross. Uh, this this view sees Genesis one one as not the beginning of everything, but a title for this unit Genesis one one through two three, the first unit in Genesis, talking about. Uh, in the beginning, God created the earth system, the universe that we live in and we observe, that Moses lived in, he's writing it down, and that Murray lives in today, you know? And verse 2 is saying, when God started renovating the earth to where it is now so we could live on it, it was dark and wet, okay? Uh, and there's a reason why people see that there. And let me just... Uh, pers- Self-disclosure, I haven't talked to my lawyers about this yet, but I feel like I probably should tell you where I'm coming from. I was a very convinced holder of the initial chaos view, the kind of the more traditional view, uh, from probably before I was saved, <laughs> all the way until I took second year Hebrew. And I really thought anybody who held to possibly an old earth would had to be a kind of closet a bad guy, you know. But then I took second year Hebrew and I found out what without form and void means. Without form and void is a very unique, distinctive Hebrew phrase. And it's actually a lot of fun to say, David. So this is going to be Hebrew 101 for you guys. Tohu wabohu. 
Okay? That's, that's how you say it in Hebrew. What the King James translates without form and void is tohu wabohu. And tohu waboho, bo, bo, uh, tohu waboho. Okay, they're really going to take my degree away now. I'm going to be a painter, if, uh, not a preacher anymore. Not there's anything wrong with being a painter or a preacher, really, but uh, I guess it could be, but uh, depending on how you do it. But uh, see, I think I have too many possibilities. Yeah, tohu wabohu is the way you say that in Hebrew. Can you say that? I'm going to give you a chance. Listen to me say it one more time correctly, then I want you to respond. We have a responsive reading here in the Hebrew text. Tohu wabohu. That means a judgment caused chaos. That's what it means in the Old Testament. That's when Moses wrote that, that's what he would have meant. Not the first phase of a positive construction project, but a renovation of a judgment caused mess. Once I saw that, and I'll show you what I, I'll show you some examples of that in a second, I I had to kind of uh, rethink. So I'm not selling the third view. I think all three are clearly in the evangelical orbit, and uh, I must have been wrong at least once on this issue because I've held two different views in my lifetime. But I think I'm right now. But let me try to simplify this because these those are technical terms, and it's kind of hard to think on Sunday morning. I get that. But I think one good way to distinguish, Dustin, between these three views, just because regardless of what view you hold, there are good Christian brothers and sisters that hold the other two, okay? One good way to distinguish those and keep them straight is to contrast how they deal with the fall of Satan, okay? Um, if you hold to the initial chaos view, the more traditional view, uh, it seems odd, number one, that God would start everything essentially as it is, except the earth looks like a mess, and in fact it uses tohu wabohu to say it's chaos. But if you can get past that, uh, you know, you, you've got your creation week, you've got Adam and Eve created, and then some of my favorite verses, I shouldn't probably tell you this from the pulpit, but at the end of Genesis 2, you know, it says, uh, you know, uh, God brings them together and uh, they leave, cleave, become one flesh, and they were naked and not ashamed and have a lot of fun, you know? So that, that was kind of, that's in the Bible, okay? So that's the end of Genesis 2. And then boom, you go to the next verse, Genesis 3, and you've got a serpent there clearly indwelt by Satan. Now here's what, here's another reason I took Hebrew at Dallas Seminary. Found out the root word that's translated to serpent there, you know what it means? Upright shining thing. Okay? When the serpent and Adam and Eve apparently didn't know that upright, shining things didn't talk. I take that literally. This upright, shining thing walks up to them fairly early on. I don't think they're 10 years into this or 100 years into this. Most people think it's just a couple of days or a couple of weeks before they fall. Okay? Upright, shining thing says, did God really tell you not to do anything? Are you kidding me? He can't boss you around like that. But here's the thing. Uh the creation of the angels is not mentioned in Genesis 1 or 2, but clearly Satan has fallen by Genesis 3, right? He must have fallen before Genesis 3, Jan, right? So, otherwise, he's not, not tempting. He's already fallen at that point, right? So where did it happen? Well, apparently, based on the first view, you've got to say, well, the angels aren't mentioned, but they're created somewhere in the first creation week. And then almost immediately they've fallen, and he's already, it just seems odd. It seems like when you read about the angelic conflict, there's a lot going on before uh, they're interacting with us. But you've got to cram that in there somewhere. And so anyway, the more traditional view says that Satan rebelled sometime after Genesis 1, 1, and 2. And really, they're forced to say sometime between the end of chapter 2 and the end of cha- and the beginning of chapter 3. That's where Satan rebelled, according to that first view. The gap theory clearly says... Satan rebelled between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That's where the gap is. Okay, That's why they have a gap. They see a gap there because they realize they need to uh, account for that. The pre-creation chaos view says Satan rebelled before Genesis 1-2. And the creation of heaven and the earth means the system we live in, that we observe in, in its full sense, that Moses lived in, that David Bearden lived in. And when God started getting the earth ready for us, and the universe is really old and really big probably, okay? 
But the earth as it exists now is very recent in geological sense. The fossil record was all laid before all this happened, okay? I mean, we, we're, the present earth system is probably 10,000, 8,000 years old, you know? It's a mind blower, but I think it fits scripture well and actually, actually fits the data quite well myself. But that would say that Satan rebelled before Genesis 1-1, and once you see that as a possibility, it opens all kinds of, uh, uh, interesting uh, implications. Now watch this. Genesis 1-2 says, the earth was without form and void. Now you already learned the Hebrew phrase for that. What is it? Tohu wabohu. Which means it's a chaos caused by divine judgment. Jeremiah 4-23 uses that phrase in whole or in part to refer to God's judgment on Israel through the Babylonians. It was a chaos. They destroyed the temple, burned it down, and took most of the nation to captivity. You remember that. In Isaiah 34.11, talking about events after and connect, connected with, leading up to the second advent of the Messiah, the glorious advent of the Messiah, talks about that God's going to bring judgment on the earth. A tohu wabohu upon the earth. It's always judgment, the effect of judgment. And then, and, and this is the one that really pushed me over the edge, okay, on this tohu wabohu thing in seminary. Isaiah 45, 18 just flat says that when God first created the earth, the earth has been around a long time in Genesis 1-1. He just says, I did not create it a waste place. That was a result of satanic rebellion, me consigning him to or around the earth in the back corner of the universe, me devastating the planet, and then me kind of giving the mirror image of the angelic conflict by renovating the planet, getting a uh, a little lower than the angels kind of a moral creature and doing that for them. So uh, let's reread our second Peter passage with that possibility in mind. And I think when you do that, it really lines up very, very nicely. Uh, and again, I'm not trying so much trying to sell my view as just maybe explaining how I ended up where I was and trying to urge you Let's show the same Christian charity to different views about Genesis that are literal and consistent with everything else in Scripture that we do with people uh, with different uh, views about prophecy than we have, right? But it, uh, I guess I would say one of the nice effects of uh, that interpretation is when I bumped into Second Peter sometime after that, the first time I thought about it, I said, all this out of water and by water makes a lot more sense than it did before, at least in my mind. So I kind of said, uh, Genesis uh, 1 now kind of lines up with Second Peter better, or maybe I should say the other way around. Second Peter lines up with Genesis better because it was written first, right? But watch this. we still got the past and the future, but let's read it this way. Uh, the past, verses 5 and 6. And again, those who laugh at God's control about the future... Uh, failed to factor in what he did in the past. Okay, so that's the big picture. Don't miss the forest for the trees here. Uh, the beginning of human history on earth. For when they maintain that the second advent's fantasy, it's not going to happen because there is no God who intervenes. There's no outside intervention in human history. It escapes their notice. The skeptics, they have PhDs that may have big mass media appeal. They don't notice or they don't realize that a logic demands a transcendent creator and scripture demonstrates, watch this, this is so cool. The world that Regina lives in, that Angie lives in, is framed by supernatural, unique creation activities and consummation activities. And so in a way, it's kind of like what I always say when we do the Lord's Supper. You know, when we do the Lord's Supper, we're doing that in part because we're living between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We're in really a very privileged position in that sense. In a more broader sense, we're kind of between these two cataclysmic, incredible, transcend scientific explanation acts of creation, consummation, and we're living in this thing now, and you might think, well, God's not doing anything now. Yeah, he is. But he holds the whole thing together. Uh, the so-called weak atomic force and strong atomic force, that's just Jesus holding the atoms together. I mean, literally. G, 9.80 meters per second squared, every day, all day, all the time. That's just God every single time making sure things don't fly off the earth so we can actually have a rational universe. So anyway, in the past, uh, the beginning of human history on earth goes back to divine intervention, the work of God, 
when they maintain there's not God's not going to intervene in the future, they fail to notice that by the word of God, through his supernatural intervention, whether you're holding to view one, view two, or view three as an evangelical, that it was the work of God that caused the heavens to exist long ago. I mean, even before Genesis 1-1, which is talking about the renovation of the system you live in now, Steve, he created the heavens long ago, the whole system long ago, but then the earth more recently, a very short period of time ago in geological sense, the earth as we know it today was formed out of water and by water. Now, by the way, when it says that the Spirit of God is moving on the surface of the waters, what does that tell you about temperature and pressure on earth in Genesis 1-2? What does it tell you about temperature? I mean, it's got to be between 32 and 212 Fahrenheit, right? It's got to be between 0 and 100, you know? I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you've got liquid water there. It's not a big ice ball. It's not a big flame ball. It's liquid water, okay? He's talking about uh, the aftermath of God's judgment. I see Satan being consigned to this little planet for his command post for a little while in the first end of the first phase of the angelic conflict and then that being devastated and then God saying watch what I'm going to do now as it were okay I'm going to take your command post and I'm going to express the highest levels of my grace and redemptive love by having this these puny little human beings redeemed by my son kind of thing by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth as we know today was formed out of water by water, tohu abohu, because it had been flooded in connection with the rebellion of Lucifer and one-third of the angels uh, flooded through liquid water. And then verse 7, moving from the past to the future, but in spite of the skeptics that laugh about all this, by his word, the present heavens and earth, the small, the weak atomic force, the strong atomic force, gravity, it's all being held together by the uh, faithfulness of God so you can actually you know, do physics uh, formulas about how consistent it is, but it's all being reserved for an end point where we're going to have a moral reckoning with God, and just like at the beginning, he supernaturally intervened at the end, he's going to end human history on his terms, and the universe as we know it is being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men at in a connection with the second advent. So the bottom line here is, let's get out of the weeds and think big picture again, Regardless of how you interpret Genesis 1, 1 and 2, uh, all this correlates with the big picture that we're saying those who laugh at God's control of the future are not factoring in his control of the, of the past. And logically, scripturally, it teaches that, and I think it makes everything else make sense. So rather than being surprised or paralyzed by the fact that some people are going to scoff at our faith, our Savior, and our believing in a second coming of Christ, um, we shouldn't be surprised or paralyzed by that. We should, in fact, have a strategy. And I would say, in closing, look at what Peter says the strategy is in his first letter. Okay, go back to First Peter 3. I mean, he's kind of assuming you read the first one before you read the second one, right, Steve? So what did he say about that? Well, it says, look, you know, people are going to scoff at you. They're going to say you're dangerous and backward and they're going to marginalize you and maybe even criminalize you. But he says in 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you actually believe Jesus is coming back. You actually believe in a supernatural creation event. Uh, you're blessed because somebody actually noticed you're different. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Uh, don't uh, be surprised or paralyzed, I would say. But here's the strategy, okay? There's always, for every negative, there's always a positive, Dustin, Scripture. Here's the positive strategy, Sharon. Sanctify Christ as Lord. That's holiness. Get Christ right at the center of your pie chart. And always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope is in you. So the next time somebody scoffs at you making a reference to the rapture or the second coming or the end of history on Jesus' terms, Say, hey, the reason you don't believe in that is because you don't factor in the fact that God started everything anyway. He started everything. He's going to end everything. That kind of thing. First uh, Peter seems to think we ought to be able to not just think through why we believe what we believe, but we ought to be able to give some kind of basic defense for it, explain it to people. Now, some people have objections just because 
they just like to rattle your chain and, and rattle, you, rattle your cage, and they're not going to respond to you no matter how well you answer their objections. But some people have honest intellectual or emotional objections. They've been hurt badly by something. I remember I witnessed to a guy who said, uh, animals have never hurt me, but many people have. And God wouldn't allow that to happen. And I felt like saying, hey, you know what? God would allow an animal to hurt you if you fell into like a, you know, a rhinoceros, you know, a cage or something. I mean, animals can hurt you too, you know? Uh, I don't see anywhere in scripture it says, you know, because there's a God, people won't hurt you. In fact, it seems to me like, uh, the, the, who's the person of the center, who's the center of Christian faith? Would it be Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, who's, who's the, what person's the center of the Christian faith? Would you say maybe Jesus Christ? Did people hurt him? I mean, the, the Jews crucified him, right? The Jews didn't crucify him. The Jewish leaders wanted him gone, so they convinced Pilate to start a process that caused the Romans to crucify him. Everybody's involved, you know. All of us are ultimately the reason he goes to the cross, because he's going there for a higher purpose. So the idea that, you know, animals have never hurt me, but people have, so God wouldn't allow that, seems very strange to me. The idea that, well, obviously God hasn't intervened in my life, you know, by opening up the Red Sea recently, so there's no way Jesus is coming back. I think you're, you're looking at things with a microscope. Number one, do you enjoy walking from your imaginary seat to your imaginary car? It's not imaginary, it's real, actually real, you know. But in, in, without fearing flying off the planet, you know why you can do that? You know why you don't have to worry about flying out of that wheelchair right now? Because there's gravity holding you in there, you know. And that's actually a good thing. Although, and I don't get any uh, commission from this, but because gravity pulls you down all day long, and I've been had gravity pull me down for 65 years. That's why, friends, I have a teeter inversion table, which is why when I remember for five minutes every day, I get in my little inversion table and hang upside down, which allows gravity to work for me and it stretches me out and all that fluid that God invented the intelligent designer to lubricate my joints goes in there because gravity smashes it down so you can use mine but I charge you $50 an hour (laughs) now I'd only recommend you do it for five minutes but I think the chiropractor charges you more so he's going to save money and I am a doctor uh not a medical doctor but just come to Dr. Brad's uh, back clinic and we will fix you up. You have to sign a disclaimer saying you won't sue me if you fall off. But uh, yeah, there's, there's just here, here's the thing you don't want to do. Um, the age of the earth is not the big issue. The big issue is intelligent design. If you can, I mean, Richard Dawkins, the biology guy, defines biology as Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He's just saying, look, I can't explain that away, but I'm just going to say you can't say that because I say so. He's admitting it looks like it's designed, but I just refuse to accept that premise. We're not going to allow that here. That's the big issue. And the intelligent designer who created a thing that actually keeps teeter in business because if you hang upside down all that fluid that doesn't get in there anymore because you're so old. Not Eugene. Uh <laughs> But some of us that are older, uh, uh, that's, that's the ticket. I mean, it seems to me like um, science, correctly understood, argues so strongly for, for the right to life. I mean, the more we learn about uh, the science of life, the, the more it becomes harder and harder, even though they're, they're digging their heels in, to support abortion. I mean, you just, if, I mean, they, the, the so-called party of science won't let us show pregnant ladies sonograms, because if once you see the sonogram, there's like a zero percent chance you're going to kill it. If you just think it's an amorphic bunch of cells, then we just rip it out. But once you see it, that's science, right? There's, the more we learn about just cellular biology, I mean, it, when you when when you go to uh, nursing school, cellular biology that's a they don't even have a course on that because it's so simple. It's just a three page pamphlet. That's all you need to know about cellular biology, right? Now there are textbooks that thick that begin to talk about how complex the so called simple cell is. It's not it's not simple. Somebody designed that. Somebody really smart designed the DNA code and all that. That's where the issue is. So many Christians will beat up each other based on age of the earth or specific interpretation of Genesis 1 
when I think, but we, but we usually have a ceasefire on the uh, prophecy aspects of our differences. I think that's a wrong tra- path to go on. And regardless of what your position is here, uh, realize that people are laughing for the wrong reasons when we think about the end times and realize that the science, real hard science is on our side. The universe is way too well designed. Uh, engineers have a hard time uh, understanding macroevolution because they realize how difficult it is to design things that work and you've got a system that makes everything break down. And for the system to work so well, somebody has designed it exquisitely. And you talk about the way the, the, like the 17 major constants are all fine-tuned just for us. Uh, he did that. So we've got a very strong case, but Peter seems to think we ought to be able not just to understand why we believe what we believe, but to be able to make a defense in the face of skeptics don't let the skeptics who laugh at you at middle school, high school, or college level uh, intimidate you. Don't be surprised or paralyzed, but realize those that are laughing about God's control of the future slash second advent uh, fail to factor in his control of the past. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Well, take this truth, uh, which is uh, so fundamental, uh and move it from our heads to our hearts. Make it not just gnosis, but epinosis, not just information, but transforming truth uh, that would really just reinforce our whole Christian worldview and our submission and seeking to follow the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your spirit convicts them of sin. They've got it. They break your rules. They break their own rules at their worst. Uh, righteousness, they need it and can't produce it. In judgment, it's coming. Uh, open their eyes to see and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And we're thinking about uh, the supernatural beginning, supernatural ending of human history. Right at the epicenter of human history is the incarnation of the God-man Savior, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, rise again from the dead. And hey, the scoffers scoff at that too. But that's the very core and most precious part of our faith. And so let us see that, hey, we don't have to apologize to anybody uh, for our faith. And in fact, uh, not only is it the basis for our lives, it's the basis for all reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.